Welcome to the Momnificent Podcast. This is the place where we help parents live a happy, healthy life with their kids. We're going to show you how to connect with your child and help them even in their most difficult moments as we hear from experts in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Karin Jakubowski, an international speaker, public school principal, and former struggling student. The Momnificent Podcast equips parents with science-based strategies to help you live a happy, healthy life with your kids. Welcome. Thank you, Dr. Shore, for joining me today. I really appreciate it. For those of you listening and joining in, I am so excited. We have a world-renowned guest on our podcast today to launch us off on a series that we're going to have on autism. So this is Dr. Stephen Shore. He is a clinical assistant professor of special education at Adelphi University and board of directors at Autism Speaks and a plethora of other things that I'll include the link at the end of this description note so you can read and further listen and hear all that Dr. Shore has in his story um, because this is going to be amazing. So Dr. Shore, welcome to Momnificent. No, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And I always love starting off asking my guests one thing. What is something you've done recently that you haven't done for a while, maybe, that just brings you joy? Oh, well, uh, uh, yesterday I went kayaking around the Louvre in Abu Dhabi, and that was really cool. <laughs> okay, I'm going to jump in your pocket because I my dream is to travel the world. So when you said the other day when we were setting this up, well, I have a conference and, and I'm over at Abu Dhabi. I was like, no way, this is so cool. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's awesome. That is so awesome. Good for you. Well, Stephen, um, the one of the reasons why I wanted to start this series on autism on my podcast is I'm an elementary public school principal. And mm-hmm. two two years ago, I the district uh, brought in and had us create in my school two building-based autism classrooms. So I have a board of six kindergartners and first graders in these building-based classrooms. And this past year, we added a third classroom. And our assistant superintendent told all the principals a month ago, hey, just a heads up, you're all going to be having classrooms in your building. Mm. So just like be prepared for it because space is always a prime thing. And so so I have students in my school and families with students with autism. I'm trying to understand them um, as well as our teachers. I mean, we have certified autism teachers that work, you know, primarily with them. And yet I received, you know, I don't, I haven't gone to school to have extra training in this area. And so I thought in order to even help educate me and my audience who listens and follows to this. And I think it's so crazy that you as a young child were almost institutionalized by doctors and now you're a college professor and published author. So can you help our audience and I understand what happened to you? What happened when you were a child? Oh, well, I was uh, very lucky. And that is uh, after I was struck with the regressive autism bomb at 18 months, like with about 30% of us, that happens to it happens. And I lost functional communication, had meltdowns, withdrew from the environment. And in brief, I became a very autistic little kid. And there was so little known about autism in those days that it took my parents a whole year to find a place for diagnosis. And when they finally did, The doctor said they had never seen such a sick child. And as you said, they recommended institutionalization. Fortunately, my parents, they advocated on my behalf and they convinced the school to take me 
in about a year. And it was during that year, my parents implemented what we would today refer to as an intensive home-based early intervention program. And this was a program emphasizing music, movement, sensory integration, narration, and imitation. And that's just today's terminology, because in those days, the concept of early intervention did not even exist. And so what did they do? Well, first, they tried to get me to imitate them. And imitation is a time-honored educational strategy. Every Everybody's used it, whether they're a certified teacher or not. But for autistic people, perhaps due to a difference in mirror neurons, that just didn't work. So my parents flipped it around and they imitated me. And once they did that, I became aware of them in my environment and they were able to move me along. And I believe the key implication is that when my parents imitated me, one, they met me where I was. And then two, they developed a trusting relationship. These are two prerequisites that are necessary for anybody to do authentic and meaningful work with an autistic person. And actually, I think that holds true for everybody else. Uh, as well, uh, whether they're autistic or not. And so with the work that my parents did, speech began to return at age four. So I think the real key is that my parents accepted me for who I was, but at the same time realized that there were a lot of challenges that needed to be overcome if I were to lead a fulfilling and productive life. And that was here in the U.S.? Yeah, that was in the U.S. Yeah, that was in Boston, to be specific. Wow. So I get a lot of people asking me, why do I think autism is growing so much? Why do we have a population of kids in school growing with it? Where where was it? Did, did it just now just is like a multiplying effect of kids having it? Or, or were there always kids? And like you said, maybe they were just in other places that didn't come to the mainstream school. Yeah, well, uh, what I do know is that uh, the with the rise in recognition of autism, autism from a very rare psychiatric disorder, uh, maybe 20 or 30 years ago, to now we the CDC accepts a prevalence rate of 1 in 44. So that's a little bit more than 2%. And what it means is that if you're a teacher and you don't have an autistic kid in your class, the numbers are going to catch up with you and you will have an autistic kid in the next one. Mm -hmm. And with this increase, you know, if it keeps going the way it has been, it may be that within the next generation, there's going to be more autistic people than non-autistic people. We're taking over. That's a thought. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think it has to do with uh, better recognition. Uh, people who were diagnosed with other things. And a while ago, it was mental retardation. If you learned slowly or uh, differently and people couldn't quite figure it out, you were just considered mentally retarded. And now the term is uh, intellectual disability. And if you look at uh, the prevalence rate, of that condition over time, you see it going down, whereas you see other categories of disability going up because we're better at recognizing what we see. As for autism, it's been a very sharp increase. And I think it's one, due to the expansion of the definition of autism. So when I was diagnosed and all through grade school, autistic people were those kids and always kids, never adults, uh, kids who didn't speak, had meltdowns, banged their head against the wall and so on. And now we look at that as someone who has it has a lot of support needs, uh, pretty uh, significant autism. And we know now that 
the autism autism is a very wide spectrum shows up in many different ways and what is something you wish your parents knew as an autistic child that maybe a parent listening will be like oh my gosh well i never thought my child might be thinking this yeah well i thought my parents were pretty good at figuring me out sounds like uh, it yeah I, I think the most important thing for parents is to get to know their child as an individual and likewise for educators get to know the autistic child or children you are supporting as individuals get to know what their strengths are what their abilities are and also where are the challenges and what can you do to accommodate for remediate remove barriers that are preventing success for the autistic individual and i know you you have a very uh, extensive musical music had a very big part in your life right yeah that's right yeah and it makes me think of uh, a student we have right now who the uh, the other day or the other month, the paraprofessional working with them said um, how much they love music class and they love mm. music. And I was like, oh, wow. Like you're saying, like try to discover what it is that they that they like, even they're nonverbal and it takes time to figure out, you know, the things that they like. But oh, I, I love everything that you're saying. And you know what? You know what really just made me smile when I saw your TED Talk and you said, what if we looked at autism as a superpower instead of a limitation? And I was just like, yes, because... I have personally experienced difficult situations in our school with our students with autism, with behavior and and their lack of being able to communicate at times. And it has turned into a meltdown, a a big scene. Um, and it's been challenging on the teachers. It's been challenging on myself at times. And it's not always easy. But I, I don't know, when I read that, something lit up in me and I was like, yes. So tell us more about that. Okay. First, uh, we should uh, uh, consider um, terminology. And, and that is so often we uh, label autistic people who don't speak as nonverbal. And yeah. it may be better and clearer uh, to reframe that as uh, non-speaking. Okay. And the reason why I say that is that I know many autistic people uh, who don't speak, but they still communicate. Once we figure out a reliable means of communication, uh, whether it's an assistive communication device, sign language, pointing at pictures, using a letter board, whatever it is, we find that that person has the same range of intelligence as anybody else does. So true. And with oh, that's verbal really communication, like there's that. a lot more than just uh, saying words, but also understanding language and also perceiving the nonverbal components of communication. So if someone is nonverbal, then that means they don't they don't understand what language is all about, how to perceive it and how to use it. And that is a very serious situation. And I've known a number of non-speaking autistic individuals uh, where I spend hours texting on Facebook or some other means of texting. And the only reason that I know they don't speak is because somebody told me or maybe I met them somewhere or saw them at a conference. But other than that, they're communicating along just like anybody else. Oh, this is good. This is good. Thank you. And and it made me think of how we sometimes tell kids or we talk about best practices with kids. And sometimes we say to a teacher, use a nonverbal cue to redirect your child. Well, you you clearly communicated what you wanted <laughs> nonverbally. Yeah. And that, that was right. my connection when you said that. I was like, oh, wait a second. You're absolutely right. It's it's a term that's just been familiar and comfortable for us. Oh, but, very. But, yeah. but, but in fact, I'm going to start changing 
how I use that word starting now. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, great. Oh, you're welcome. Non-speaking. So we're all here to all here to learn from each other. I know. I love this. So you talk about the four A's of autism. You want to touch on right. that briefly for us? Oh, I do. Because uh, you have that question about autism as a superpower. And that uh, that fits very well into that question. So the four A's of autism uh, begin, that first A is awareness. And uh, that we've been at awareness for uh, over a generation. And we've gotten it to a point where, as I mentioned brief uh, before, uh, we uh, we accept a prevalence rate of one in 44. And we now recognize autism uh, at home, in education, in the community, in employment, and increasing numbers of autistic individuals reading about it, usually online, and saying, gee whiz, I think that's me. I think I need to get this validated by a formal diagnostic procedure. And all of this awareness work uh, builds a solid foundation for the next step. And that is acceptance. And acceptance is where you turn away from thinking of autism as a series of deficits, disorder, and disability, and look at autism as a set of abilities. And you work with the characteristics, not against them. So here's an example. We've got a child in school, an autistic child who has no motivation to do mathematics. Uh, maybe they're not good at it, perhaps had some bad experiences with it, or whatever it is. And often what will happen is a an educator or a consultant uh, will do an interest inventory and ask the question, what is the child interested in? And so in talking to the child's parents and others, we find that the child uh, goes home right to their room, jumps onto the computer and uses a flight simulator, uh, which they do all, they would do all afternoon and do it through dinner and do it all night if you let them do it. So it's a real interest, a fascination. And then what will happen is that access to that favorite activity will be taken away, but you can earn access to it by uh, pleading your goals, meeting your goals in mathematics. However, I see that as problematic. Uh, one is you're taking away something that the child lives for. Two, you've turned it into an extrinsic reinforcer. So you do this, you get that. But that has nothing to do with this. As is discussed in uh, college psychology courses, intrinsic reinforcers, if you want to use behavioral language, are much more powerful than extrinsic reinforcers. And what that suggests is that there's every reason to find a way to teach mathematics using the flight simulator. And in that way, mathematics becomes intrinsically reinforcing. And eventually the child learns that if they understand math, they can probably use the flight simulator even better. So that's an example of working with the characteristics. So it's working with those interests. And it's these interests that can turn into, uh, or that form the basis for future success. Yeah. Every autistic person I know who is successful has found a way to parlay their interest into something society values, which usually translates to employment. So now we set that stage with acceptance to the third A, which is appreciation. And appreciation is when we value autistic people for what we can contribute to society. And we already see, we've seen this initially with large IT companies, Microsoft, Google, um, Apple, and others, uh, other computer uh, companies or 
IT companies, to be specific, actively seek autistic individuals as their employees because they know that a certain number of us can engage in IT geekery at levels that other people can't. And all of that is well and good to read about and support this kind of computer super geekery. And at the same time, it's also important to ask, what about everybody else? And everybody else includes those of us who have skills in other areas. In fact, only a small minority of autistic people are computer geeks, big enough for these companies to notice and make a big deal about. Uh, most of us have skills in other areas. And also, what about those individuals who need more supports in communication, managing schedule, transportation, and other areas? And to that end, that brings to mind of a fellow I know in Florida who doesn't speak much at all. He uses an assistive communication device, but he loves to fold laundry. Maybe it has to do with the creases. Maybe it has to do with uh, freshly laundered clothes. And he's a little bit like a cat who will jump into a pile of freshly laundered clothes when it's they're still warm. And that's what he loves to do. And I know many people who would like help with their laundry. And in fact, he'd be the first one on the plane to fly right out to you. He'd even fly to Abu Dhabi <laughs> and help me with my laundry too. But if you're going to, if, if you were going to do that, you'd have to pay him because that is his job. And he spends all day in a laundry mat pulling clothes out of a hot dryer, folding them better, faster than anybody else and having a good time doing it. He's contributing to society and he's valued for what he contributes to society. And in school, we can see the same thing. Uh, the student who has auditory sensitivities very, very well may also have perfect pitch and that will be good in music class. Yeah. Uh, the child who where routines are really important. Well, there are certain routines in school every single day, and that child will be great with warm-up routines in gym, for example. So we can take these characteristics, and instead of looking at them as deficits, disorder, or disability, we can look at them as abilities. And then there's the fourth A, and that's action. And action is the glue that keeps those first three A's, awareness, acceptance and appreciation together. It's the work that we have to do to make them make them happen. So my question is to to you and to everybody out there in Facebook Live land and YouTube land, uh, what actions are you going to take to climb these stairs of initially awareness, then acceptance, and then appreciation to promote success for the autistic person you support? Mm -hmm. And if you are an autistic person, the same deal holds. What are you going to do to learn more about your strengths and abilities to that will lead to success. That's beautiful. I, I love that. And it's, it's something that I do uh, with students who have challenging behaviors at school. They end up being looked at, treated like the bad kid because they just make bad choices often. Uh, and I, I never feel like that has to really be a trajectory of who they are going to be the rest of their life. Like you made a bad decision, you made a bad choice, but every moment is brand new. Every day is brand new. Um, mm -hmm. And I always choose to see those kids in that fresh light. And I find ways for them that they're good at and highlight those strengths because right. I'm just not going to sit there and harp on your bad behaviors and just treat you like you're a bad kid for the rest of the time. I'm ever going to know you here these six years in elementary school, for example. And so to me, I, I feel like I see that very similar here with our students with autism. And I love how you call it mirror, mirror and match their action yeah. or their reaction uh, to try to connect with them. And because sometimes I feel like I don't know how to get into their world in a sense, because I, you know, walk by them in the hallway or I'll say hi, or I'll be in their classroom and I don't really know how to engage with them. Mm -hmm. So I really like how you started off 
sharing kind of, in my my words, mirror or match them to try to connect or have them, maybe it will help them notice me within their world and really right. looking at things that they are interested in to bring more of that into what you need them to do anyway mm-hmm. with the interest they have. And at times we do that with kids who just, your typical kids who have difficulty in school. We try to find oh, sure. what are you interested in to help get you motivated to do what I need you to do anyway. And so I just love how you just opened my eyes to see that also with with our students with autism. This is this is awesome. I love that. No, really you're welcome. And really, that brings up another another important thing to keep in mind, and that is so often as we're developing strategies, just as you were talking about, for supporting autistic individuals and students with other disabilities. Uh, really, these strategies that we develop are extensions of good teaching practice. So whatever you're doing for the autistic person will likely benefit everybody else. Really love that you said that because for myself, feeling like, well, I don't have a degree and certification in autism. How how can I understand and relate and help these teachers, these kids? And at times my teachers feel at a loss because they feel like they haven't gotten any training that in our minds, we feel like should help us better with them. And you totally Mm -hmm. debunk that entire myth because you're right. And I just made the connection of the very thing that you said to something that we already do already. So powerful. I got to take you in my pocket. Okay. And I'm gonna take you to all my (laughs) schools and I'm going to share you with everybody. I'm gonna share this podcast with all of them. Like just Uh, that, that simple thing that you said was just such an eye opener. And I, and I hope more teachers can hear this message and realize, you know what, it's okay. Like what you know to do with your kids, you can just keep doing it with with your with our students with autism. And what I notice is that behind concerns and complaints, uh, and a very common complaint that and you just pretty much mentioned it, that teachers have is, well, nobody taught me how to teach and support autistic students. And you can generalize that to students with special needs. Um, I don't have this background. And what I find is the teachers generally want to teach and they want to do a good job. And it can feel threatening when you don't understand how to support an autistic student. And if we can look at that as doing kind of more of what you do already, perhaps a little bit more intensively and focused for the autistic person, uh, that can go a long way. And as an educator and I've seen this happen with uh, supervisors at work too, uh, with they'll say, you know, all the work that I've done in learning how to better communicate with, teach, get along with uh, my autistic student or employee, uh, that's made me a better teacher or a supervisor overall. So what is something you want to tell parents to stop doing with their child with autism? and start doing. Stop putting uh, limitations on your child or student and start looking at strengths and abilities and finding ways to parlay those into possible future areas of study or even employment later on in life. So for example, at age four, I was found by my parents taking apart a watch with a sharp knife. I'd pop open the back, extract the motor, remove some of the gears, spin them around, and then put it all back together again. And the watch still worked. At four years old? This is left over. That's awesome. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And did they they keep giving you stuff like that? Did they? Well, that's what they did. They supported that interest. And I bring that up because even at this very young age, it's important to be looking for strengths and to be looking for those abilities, which may translate directly to a future area of study or employment or even just enjoyment. 
too, just doing it. Um, you know, at that time, it looked like, well, maybe I could be a watchmaker. Right. I'd need a lot of support and communication and all those other things that you need to know in uh, living as an adult. But at least it was something that I could do. That's why it's important to always be on the lookout for these things. Well, Dr. Shore, thank you so much for everything that you shared. I hope I can maybe invite you back onto this podcast. And I'm so excited. I'm going to share this episode with all of my teachers, all of my parents. Um, I just love these nuggets that you gave us and just helped even me to start thinking differently. Um, so helpful. Uh, how can someone find and follow you? Oh, well, you can look me up on Google. If you type in Stephen Shore and autism after my name, then my information will pop up. You can go to my website, drstephenshore.com. You can come up, you can look for me on Facebook. This was awesome. I'm so excited. Oh yeah, it was great talking to you. Thank you. Well, that's all we've got for this episode of the Momnificent Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, I would be honored if you would subscribe and rate if you really liked it. I know wherever you're listening right now, it might not be the best time to leave a comment, but feel free to leave a question, a review, or a comment at any time. And until next time, remember, don't worry, be happy. Be happy.